series. All right, Ezra chapter 10, let's open with a word of prayer. Let's dig into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. Lord, I know in studying this for many hours this week, just looking at personal revival in our own walk with you, I pray we'd never be satisfied where we are in our walk. May we always desire to be closer to you, to grow in our relationship with you. So be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, so Ezra 10, we're going to finish up the book of Ezra tonight. And quickly, we remember that Ezra is, Ezra is after the 70 years that they were in captivity in Babylon because they were worshiping idols. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to drag them away, including people like Daniel. They spent 70 years in captivity in Babylon. And then we saw that they had a, an earlier group that came about 60 years earlier of about 50,000 people to rebuild Jerusalem. And they had the permission of the king. He even gave them the wealth to do it. And so they worked on the physical building of the city. And then Ezra came along 60 years later, starting in chapter 7, and he came mainly to deal with the spiritual problems within the church, within the people and with the church yet. And so we saw in chapter 9 last week, if you were here, I told the message last week, uh, I forget, see what happens? I left it. It's all good. But last week we saw that Ezra, when he got to the land, first everyone was excited because gifts had been brought to help uh, make the nation profitable. And they had come back and they had reestablished the sacrificial system and they were worshiping the Lord again and God was being glorified and everybody was excited. And those who had just come had never seen Jerusalem before, so they were excited to see it. But then we saw at the beginning of last week in chapter 9, it says there in verse 3, for they've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of these lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in trespass. Here's what happened. They got to the land, and he finds out that the people that have been there are now marrying unbelievers, pagan idolaters. And it was the very reason they were taken into captivity is they turned to pagan idolatry. And it's, there's a command in Deuteronomy that tells them, do not take, marry your sons or their daughters or, their daughter, your, or your daughters to their sons, because they will drag you away from the truth. You will follow after false gods, and God will bring righteous judgment. Here's what's happened. The same thing was happening in those days in Israel that's happening today in our world, where people who are supposed to believe in God are biblically illiterate toward what the Word of God teaches. And they had gotten caught up in the false things. And we saw last week in verse 5, they were that uh, verse 6, that uh, Ezra was ashamed and humiliated by what he saw. Uh, we saw a picture of God's grace in chapter 9, because he said in verse 8, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 8, where he says, we didn't get the punishment we deserve. God's been gracious to us. I want you to know something. If you're living a life in rebellion against God, and you've been getting away with it for a while, you need not to confuse that with God's grace. You, know, you need not to confuse that with God's permission to continue on in it, because even though God's been gracious so far, righteous judgment will come. And then Ezra cries out and says, Lord, we've broken your commands. And the people hear it, and they see his heart is broken. And then he encouraged them that they need to obey the commands of God and that our God has punished us, again, less than we deserve. Now let's read verse 15, and we'll get into the tonight's chapter. It says, O Lord of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant 
as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. They're saying none of us can stand before you with right standing because of the choices we've made. Now, Ezra had not committed this sin, but he still puts himself in with everyone else that he is guilty. And when he looks at his nation, he is so heartbroken. He is He cannot believe that they have fallen so far away from God. And because he is a priest, because he is one of the ones that has been uh, anointed as the leader, even by the king himself, he was given authority in a civil way, but he also has authority in a spiritual way. And so tonight we're going to see, if you grab your outline, pursuing personal revival. You know, revival is something we all want. And there's, there's several things that happen when these great revivals take place in history. And they're always the same. And we're going to see a lot of those things are taking place here in chapter 10. And Ezra is going to be the one who helps draw the people back into the Lord. Of course, it's going to be the Holy Spirit moving upon them. And we're going to learn some lessons for us on how we can be closer to the Lord. How If we need revival in our own life, if we're not where we used to be spiritually, how do we get back there? And if we're, we're, if we're a lukewarm Christian, how do we become an on-fire Christian? How do we live a life sold out and set apart to the Lord? So I got, I've got five points here, and we're really going to just look at verses 1 through 17. We'll go over verses 18 through 44. It's just a list of all the names of the people that sinned. By the way, that's probably not a verse you want to be in in the Bible. How would you like it if your name's in the Bible one time and it's, let me show you who blew it, Dave. And there's a list of names all the way to the back. And what that does tell us is that God cares about the, the sin of the nation, but he also knows the sin of the individual. And you know what? God knows our hearts and God knows what we're dealing with and God knows our thought life. And even though he looks at our nation, he's also looking at each of us individually. Amen? So first one is by keeping short accounts with God. You know, as believers, we should be in a position where we're walking in intimate fellowship with God all the time. And if we are, we will be quick to be convicted by our sin. We'll also be quick to confess it and repent. Amen? And the longer time that we have between when we sin and when we repent is a mark of someone who's not very mature in their faith. So we're going to see, how do we keep short accounts with God? Holy Spirit conviction, coming with broken and humble confession. Again, and by the way, we don't want our sin exposed, but what's better, sin that's hidden or sin that's been exposed? Which is better? Exposed. Why? Because then there's confession, amen? And there's repentance, and we, we have to deal with it. When it's hidden, we just leave it there. We may just continue to ignore it and continue to walk in it, and praise God when our sin gets exposed. We don't like that. We, we don't mind if your sin gets exposed. It's not mine, amen? Did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Yeah, praise God they didn't find out my hidden sin, right? Taking action to put away your sinful behavior. You know, repentance means to take action. And by the way, repentance isn't just for when you get saved. Now, you must repent to be saved. But as believers, should we continue to repent? What's the answer? We should be repenting every day, every time we sin. What is, there's confession and repentance. And by the way, they're like Siamese twins. You can't have one without the other. If you're truly confessing, there should be repentance. It's not just saying, well, I'm sorry, and continuing in the behavior. True confession is going to also change your behavior, and that's what repentance is. So number one, keep short accounts with God. Number two, deal quickly with sin. The sincerity of someone's repentance, as I said, is how quickly they act upon it. And a refusal to repent results in broken fellowship with God. Guys, we need to read the Word, know the Word, and obey the Word, and we can't just cut out any of those. Amen? So it's open it, read it and obey it. 
And part of getting close to the Lord is walking in faithful obedience to His commands. Again, God's Word, God's commands are not a fence to keep us out of Disneyland. It's a guardrail to keep us from driving off a cliff. He's not trying to keep us from fun. He wants to keep us from harm. Number three, this is a tough one. and People struggle with this. Separate yourself from the world. The word to separate there is actually to be holy. We're going to see that in the text. It's to be holy. He's saying be separate. Be set apart from the world. Be holy. And you know, the Lord tells us in his word, be holy for I am holy. Guys, this is not our home. We are called to be different than the world. We minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. If we want to see revival in our lives, we shouldn't be so much like the world that the world thinks we're just like them. It should be obvious to the world that we're, what's different? What's up with you? Why are you different? How can you have joy in the midst of what's going on in the world around us? How in the world can you be married for 40, 50 years? How in the world do you, do you live in such an environment where God is being glorified? Well, because we're not of this world. And, and by the way, this is not our home. And because it's not, we don't need to hold on to it too tightly. We can hold on to it loosely. Point number four, examine your heart before the Lord. We're going to see that they're going to seek godly counsel and wisdom. And these guys who've been in open rebellion against God are going to be exhorted to repent and then they're going to come before the, the elders, if you will, and they're going to judge what they've been doing. And praise God, again, you heard me say it all the time, we don't stab each other in the front, we're in the back, we stab each other in the front. Amen? As believers, we need to love each other enough that if we're, if we're getting off track, I want someone to love me enough to come up and say, Dave, why are you acting like that? Why are you behaving like that? I've noticed how you're doing this or that. And you know what? We need to love each other enough to call each other to repentance. So seek godly counsel and wisdom from mature believers. Be transparent about how you're doing spiritually. Be open to correction. Who likes to be corrected? Who thinks that's a fun deal? But you know what? We need to be corrected. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He corrects us, but God may bring people our way. And then turn away from sinful behavior. And then finally, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It's real easy to point at the world and judge the world, but the reality is we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. The world acts like the world. And so we shouldn't be surprised by the world acting like the world, but we should be surprised by believers acting like the world. We should, be, we should have different priorities, different passions, and our lives should be different. God knows, sees, and knows the sin of every believer. And while our sin may be hidden from the world, nothing is hidden from God. So let's begin there in verse 1, pursuing personal revival. First, by keeping short accounts with God. I've got a grandson na named Ezra. And uh, he's 10 years old, and I love, or, man, he's older than that now, he's 12 years old, excuse me, his brother's 10. They got four boys all in a row. So Ezra, I love this chapter, and I love Ezra's heart, and I just, I'm, I'm glad that I have a grandson with his name, because it says, now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. Now Ezra is confessing a sin he did not commit. Ezra is confessing on behalf of his nation and his people. And he is so heartbroken about the sin that's around him that it drives him to a place of weeping and falling down on his face before Almighty God. When was the last time you prayed for someone else like that? And I love Ezra's heart. 
And his heart is going to impact the crowd around him. Other people see him because he's doing this publicly, and his prayer is going to bring conviction to their hearts. He's praying this, and they know he hasn't been a part of this sinful behavior. He has not married a pagan woman. He has not got caught up in you know, being married to someone who worships false idols and turned his back on the true and living God. He's a man that walks in intimate fellowship with God, and yet he's a man who prays and intercedes on behalf of others. The power of Ezra's confession was not just recorded in his words in chapter 9 that we just looked at, but it's the depths of the heart that prompted this prayer. It's seen in his weeping and bowing down before the throne of God, and he prayed his prayer and humbled himself on behalf of the people publicly. He confessed openly before and on behalf of a very large assembly of men, women, and children. Now, the word bowing down there, the grammar implies he kept bowing. He kept falling to the ground. He kept pressing his face to the ground. He just repeatedly was crying out to God, and he was not ashamed to be seen by everybody in a place of being humbled and broken and desperate for God and crying out to the Lord. You know, I love that example because too many Christians today, we can fall into the trap of being more worried about how we appear before men than what kind of relationship we have with God. And we won't pray out loud because we're afraid someone might make fun of us. So we keep our, keep our opinion to ourselves, our calling to ourselves. We don't share our faith with other people because we don't know what to say. And I love Ezra's heart here. He could care less what people think. He wants to honor God. And he wants to see revival. And he wants to see these people get right with the Lord. And his heart is broken. Our heart should be broken for our nation. Amen? And people need to get right with the Lord, and it needs to start with us. Notice it says there in verse 1 at the end of it, for the people wept very bitterly. Watching Ezra pray for them and be heartbroken for them brought them to a place where they started weeping as well. I've told this story before, and I just love it. Pastor Chuck Smith, who's been in heaven about 10, 11 years now, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, who God, man God used, he found out that a guy that he was really close to that was actually, um, you know, had been going to Calvary Costa Mesa for like 20 years or so, and he knew him very well, and he knew his family very well. And this man, he found out, had left his wife for another woman. And he had gone and moved into her house. And so Pastor Chuck got in his car, found out where she lived, drove over there, and he noticed when he got there that, you know, he, had, he lived in a big, beautiful home with his whole family, and this was kind of in a rough neighborhood. When, no, no offense, but when the woman came to the door, um, he thought, man, she's not anywhere near as beautiful as his wife. I don't understand this. And Chuck came in thinking he was going to exhort this man, and he sat down on his sofa, and he wept for 30 minutes and never said one word. He just cried. And after about 30 minutes, he got up, went, got in his car, and went back to the church. It was on a Friday, Sunday that man was back in church sitting next to his wife. What happened? He saw just the heart that Chuck had for him, and it brought him to the end of himself. That's what's happening here. Ezra's crying out, and the people are watching, this big, huge crowd of people, and they see how Ezra's crying out to the Lord on their behalf, and he's interceding on their behalf, and he's heartbroken about the choices that they've made. And when they hear him crying out, it brings them to a place where they start weeping themselves. You know, I pray that we would love people so much, and we would intercede so much on their behalf, that they would be moved by the fact 
that we care enough to intercede, but it would grip their hearts as it's gripped ours. This shows that the people, having witnessed Ezra's humble and public confession, were convicted and saw their need to confess their sins and repent. And again, they sorrowed over their sin and their broken covenant with God. Our culture today has become so desensitized to sin. How many people do you think actually walk around thinking, you know what? I'm a sinner and I need to get right with God. If that. If that. Here's the reality. They don't think that what they're doing is evil. They just do it. There's no conviction when they do it. They don't feel bad about it. I mean, I work, you know, most of you guys know I work for the same company for 35 years, kind of high-end sales. These guys make a lot of money and they're pretty successful. And these guys were just crude and their lives and their passions and their desires. And they would talk about the women they're sleeping with when they're married and they get involved in doing coke and all this nonsense, and they're chasing after the things of the world, and they're all prideful and arrogant. And you look at them and you think, they need Jesus, amen? And for them, they don't think any of it's wrong. And, and we get desensitized, and when we get desensitized, we will just continue on our sinful behavior. Guys, if there's no conviction, there's been no conversion. Because if you know the Lord and you take the Holy Spirit with you to go commit adultery, you're going to feel convicted or to gossip about somebody or tell a lie or, or be, be you know, hateful to your wife or your husband. You know, you're going to feel convicted. And, can, and if you feel conviction, praise God, those are ownership papers on heaven because that's the Holy Spirit. Amen? Even professing Christians that have allowed the culture and their lukewarm walks to bring them to a place where they see sin is no big deal. I had a Christian tell me the other day, well, it's only a little white lie. It's not a big deal. Really? Jesus died for that. Amen? Amen? Well, it's just a little bit of an exaggeration. I hear a guy on the phone is supposed to be a believer, and he's selling something. He's exa- I go, bro, that ain't true, what you just told that guy on the phone. Well, you know, sometimes you got to put a little relish on the hot dog to sell the product. No, no, no. You're a believer. I'll see you at church on Sunday. Can I get an amen to that? But that's what can happen is when the world doesn't see sin as a big deal, there are believers that, especially if you're not in the Word every day, you're going to start seeing sin as not that big a deal. And the enemy will whisper in your ear, well, God will forgive you. It's okay. God will forgive you. Go ahead and do that. Instead of being grieved by it, they make excuses for it or ignore it altogether. You guys, the more we love God, the more we're going to hate sin. And the more we love God the more we're going to hate the sin in our own life. And we're not going to make excuses for it. We're going to be grieved by it, and we're going to hopefully keep short accounts with God. Through the centuries, the mark of a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit among the people of God is a conviction of sin that leads to brokenness and confession. If you want to see somebody who's growing in the Lord, they're going to be somebody who hates their own sin. The apostle Paul said at the beginning of his ministry, I'm the least of the apostles, and by the end of his ministry, he said he was the chief of sinners. And we know he was closer to the Lord in the end than he was at the beginning, but the closer we get to God, the more we recognize our own sin and the more we hate it. Amen? And as believers, help us. Ezra's humble confession moved the hearts of the people and brought them to a place of weeping before God over their sin. And confession is a neglected doctrine we don't talk about enough. We should be confessing daily. Amen? Lord, forgive me. I pray that almost as much as I pray, Lord, help. Two of my favorite prayers. Amen? It only comes to its rightful place in times of revival. 
When we're truly confessing, confession is a part of what brings about revival. When the Holy Spirit's convicting power makes it impossible for the compromising believer to have any peace of mind until the wrong is openly confessed, and that's when revival takes place. When you get to a place where you just can't even take, I can't take another step until I confess what I did. And we need to get to that place. Uh, there's a story about uh, Spurgeon. He's walking across the street. And back in those days, they didn't have automobiles in the 1800s. And he's walking across the street with a couple other guys, that, other pastors that he knew. And he stops in the middle of the street. And these buggies are going by, and they're on the other side of the street calling him out. Get out. What are you doing? And he comes to the other side. He goes, I had a sinful thought, and I didn't want to take another step until I got right with God. Now, that's the heart we ought to have. Amen? To where I, I don't want to take another minute until I get right with the Lord. Spiritual maturity is a time between when we sin and when we confess gets shorter and shorter. And revival comes when believers come to a place of brokenness, confession, and repentance. And when the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to the depths of their sin and their need for repentance and confession. Revival, revival moves men to love God more deeply than ever and despise their own sin more than ever. Let's quit making excuses for our sin. Let's quit acting like it's no big deal. And let's quit categorizing sin. A half-truth is a whole lie. Amen? Now, the Bible has much to say about confession. And let me just go through a couple things real quickly. We'll move on to verse 2. Confession should be made to the one you sinned against. If you sin against God, you confess to God. We always confess to God. If you sinned against your spouse, you need to go confess it to your spouse. Amen? That was a cricket. Amen? If you sin against your boss, confess it to your boss. So confession is, you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to come and do something that's uncomfortable. You know what? I said something bad about you, boss, to the other co-workers. I feel totally convicted. Will you please forgive me? Number two, confession publicly uh, of specific sins should be made within a circle of people affected by those sins. I do think you can over-confess. And what I mean by that is if I've sinned against uh, my brother, my actual brother, I don't need necessarily to tell it to everyone because in some cases, I might be taking the burden off of me and putting it on somebody else. Somebody I know recently had been struggling with pornography and he was so convicted by it, he ended up telling like everybody that he worked with, his, you know, everybody in his family, including his sisters who did not want to hear it. And, he just, and then he calls me to confess it to me and I'm like, I, you know, I don't really need all those details in my mind. You know what I mean? And what I mean by that, I think we should confess, but I think sometimes we need to confess to the person we've sinned against. Amen? Because sometimes what it does is it, it makes you feel better, but sometimes it drops a, an anchor on somebody else. Confession of general spiritual need while being discreet about specific sin is appropriate when the circle of people affected by the sin is either personal or very small. Like I said, so confession doesn't have to go into all the details necessarily unless it's something that's hurting an individual, but we should confess. Confess to the Lord and confess to one you've offended. Confession should be uh, appropriately specific and, co and confession should be thorough. So Lord, help us to keep short accounts with you, to live lives of humility, brokenness, repentance, and confession. Look at verse 2 and 3. And Shechaniah, okay, this is another one of uh, godly men. Shechaniah, the son of Jehuel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Here's what he said. He confesses the sin that Ezra's weeping about. 
He recognizes what happens. And because Ezra is crying out to God and his heart is broken, it causes this man to search his own heart and to see what's going on around him and to recognize the sin that was taking place and say, we've got to fix this. And at the end of the verse there, he says there's hope. There's hope in spite of this. You know why there's hope? Because there's confession and there's repentance. And when there's confession and repentance, it always brings hope. Amen? If there's no confession, if there's no repentance, there's a hard heart. We've transgressed against our God, yet now there is hope. Shechaniah recognized the severity of their sin. He also knew that their present brokenness over their sin was an emblem of the work of the Holy Spirit among them. Thus, it was a reason for hope in Israel. When we start to see repentance, there's hope. When we start to see confession, there's hope. Wouldn't it be great if our nation started confessing and repenting from the fact that we've turned our back on Almighty God? Wouldn't there be hope in the land? I, lo- I just love our Speaker of the House. God bless that guy. And when he just gets up and starts talking, I'm like, man, I remember when our country was like that. I remember when we talked about the Lord all the time. And now Christians are mocked. And Israel's got anti-Semitism. You have all this stuff that is so ungodly, and people line up behind it. And the people that talk about God, look, we used to be a moral society. Everybody knew right from wrong. Then we became an immoral society where we knew what was right and what was wrong and we chose to do wrong. And now we're an amoral society where there are no morals and the only people that catch any flack are the ones with morals. And that's where we live today. And when someone's confessing and someone's crying out to God, it can impact other people. And you see this other godly man get up and go, we've sinned. We need to get right with God. And because of this confession of Ezra and all the people that have joined him in weeping bitterly, there's hope for all of us. And guys, we want to see revival. It needs to start in our hearts first. Amen? He recognized their sin. We think the worst thing again that can happen is if our sin is exposed, but the truth is it's better if it's been exposed. Their sin's been exposed. You know what? This is taking place, and maybe no one's even talking about it. They just started compromising. They just started marrying all the pagan women. And all of a sudden, they've got idol, you know, idolatry coming back into the land, the same thing that took them off into captivity. They've taken their eyes off of God. But because everyone's doing it, and nobody's confronting it, nobody says anything about it, and there's no confession, and there's no repentance, Ezra comes along and just starts praying about it. He's heartbroken that it's happening, and now everybody, because one man cried out to God, because one man recognized that sin, because one man wept bitterly, because one man interceded, it's going to change all of Israel. You know what? We never know who that man or woman is going to be. Maybe it's you. Amen? Maybe God will use us as we cry out to the Lord. For confession, repentance, and intimate fellowship with God, it's better that the sin is exposed. Look at verse 3. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives... And those who've been born to them, according to the advice of my master, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. Let us make a covenant. Notice how quickly this has taken place. Ezra cries out to God and he weeps. The people see it, they hear his prayer, they join him in weeping. Shechaniah steps up and identifies the sin that's the problem, the main sin that's the problem. And then he says, We need to make a covenant with God. We need to get right with God. We need to make a promise to God. We need to make an oath and confess to him what we've done wrong. And we need to get right with God again. All of this because Ezra prayed. 
Shekinah advised actions of repentance. True repentance goes beyond feelings of brokenness. It requires actions to turn away from sinful behavior. So just, just feeling bad about your sin is not repentance. Repentance is you're, you're confronted with your sin and you do something about it. If you stole money, give it back. That's repentance. Amen? If you cheated on your taxes with the IRS and you know that you got over for a couple, you write them a check. If you gossiped and tore down someone's reputation, do what you can to restore it. If you've been showing up to work late and, and clocking in time for the full time, go confess that and make that right. You know, if you're, if you're lying, if you're exaggerating, if you're stealing, if you're lusting in your heart, whatever it is, fix it. Repent and, and make it right. Brokenness over your sin is a good start, but it's not enough. Repentance produces an action. Repent literally means a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction. It means to turn. So you're headed this direction. You've been living this way. You've been making compromises for your, your, your sinful behavior. And as you're walking in it, now the Holy Spirit's convicted you and he's drawn you back into himself. And you come to a place where you're heartbroken over it, but it's not enough if you're going to just keep walking that way. You need to turn around, make things right, and surrender your life to the Lord. Turn away from the world and put away the things that are drawing you away from him. Notice he says, put away our wives and those that have been born to them. Now that's kind of heavy. Do you understand what that says? Divorce the women and have her take the children with her. Now, does that sound like something? Now, first of all, I want to make this really clear. This is the Old Testament, and this is something that because of the pagan idolatry that came with them, we're going to see later that these women are going to be given an opportunity. They're going to be examined. That's what verses 18 through 44 are. They're going to examine. They're going to bring every man in that married a pagan woman. And they're going to sit down with them, and they're going to talk to her and ask her if she surrendered her life to the true and living God. Has she given her life to the true and living God? If she has, if she's turned away from the idols, from you know, the pagan land she came from, and she surrendered her life to the Lord, she can stay. And so can the kids. But if she's continuing to hold on to the pagan idolatry that they know will infect the entire land, they're going to take her out and send her back home. And God cares, and we're gonna, and I want to. I'll go over marriage in a moment. There's a New Testament, uh, many two New Testament chapters on marriage, and while that was something that took place, and it was a radical thing that took place, and it makes sense in the fact that this is supposed to be the holy land. It had been corrupted by pagan idolatry before, and God said that's not acceptable. We're not going to let that happen again. And if someone's bringing that here, they need to go. And even if you're married, they need to go. But put them away. It was going to take part, again, to put away their pagan wives and their children, again, because children usually went with their mom. So they put them away, and some debate if this was right, but the man of God said, let it be done according to the law. That's what it says there in the verse, let it be done according to the law. They'd been warned not to intermarry with pagans and would draw them away from the true and living God. Now, in today, in the new covenant, unbelievers and divorce. I had three conversations today about this. Three people married to unbelievers called me back to back to back. And I spent about an hour on the phone with each one of them. And one of them wants out so bad she doesn't know what to do. And she wants to know, can she get out? Another one is committed to stay. The other one is trying to figure out his way. 
So we need to be careful before marriage because uh, a vow, as you've heard me talk about, it tells us in 2 Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? The person you marry is the second most important decision you're going to make in your entire life behind giving your life to Jesus. Amen? And when you marry an unbeliever, here's what happens right away. And by the way, unbelievers aren't horrible people necessarily, right? They can be nice people. They can be kind people. You might get along with them. But here's the reality. If you're born again, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And if they're not born again, they're spiritually dead. And when I was a youth pastor and I'd find out a guy's dating an unbeliever, I'd say, you're, you're dating a dead girl, bro. What are you doing? You're dragging a corpse in here. What's wrong with you? You don't date dead people. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. So God has a person for you. But here's the problem. If you're a believer... Your passion in life is going to be to love, serve, honor, and walk with the Lord. If the person's not born again, it cannot be that. It won't be that unless they get saved. So what are you doing? Here's your passion. It's God, and their passion is fishing or you know, their job or whatever. It's not the Lord. And then if you have children, you've got somebody who doesn't love God and somebody who does, and they might even, and again, they might tell you all you want to hear until you get married, and then you find out they're not on fire for God once you're married. Now, I want to encourage you. Don't get married in haste. Take some time. Get to know them. Go through pre-marriage counseling. And by the way, if you have to prop them up to, invite, to introduce them to your Christian friends, wrong person for you. Amen? If, you could, if, if they know the Lord and they're on fire for God, you can just let them loose at church and they'll be just fine. Amen? I meet people all the time. They're like, well, I say, so where's he at with the Lord? Uh, well, I, uh, I already know then. You already told me. You know what I mean? Where's he at with the Lord? Uh, hubba hubba. Oh, no, yeah, no. No, no, no. Bring him down here. Joshua and I will talk to him in Jesus' name. Can I get amen to that? But the point is, when we're unequally yoked, we, will pay, we can pay for it for a lifetime. Now, in the new covenant, if you're married to an unbeliever, you stay and pray. You don't bail out, you work it out. Can I get an amen to that? Why? Because once you're yoked together, the only biblical grounds for divorce are adultery or abandonment by an unbeliever. That's it. There's no other grounds for divorce. Now, there's grounds for separation. If I always tell uh, one person, if a, if a man is harming his get out. Let's get you to safety. You need to be separated from that guy. But here's the reality. So, and then people, here's what happens. They marry in haste, and then when things are difficult, they want to find a loophole to get out. And I, I was talking to someone today that was looking for a loophole, and I'm like, you don't have one. I can't get divorced. You, well, yeah, I can get divorced. You'll be an open rebellion against Almighty God, and if you ever get married again, you'll be walking in an open rebellion. You want to do that? You'll be in adultery. Oh, man. Yeah, call the wrong guy if you wanted a different answer. That's what the Bible says. So when you get married, when you are courting to marriage, make sure that that person loves the Lord more than you do, or as much or more than you do, and they better love the Lord more than they love you. Yeah. Amen? And I tell people, when you make a vow, here's what you're saying. I promise, I don't care what you do, I don't care how disgusting you become or how hateful you are, I'm not leaving. That's what a vow is. Amen? And you know what? What a blessing when you have a spouse who loves Jesus. One of the people I was talking to, I said, what would your life be like if your wife loved Jesus? He just went, oh, I can't even imagine. So please, I know I'm taking some time on this, but you know what? 
It says in 1 Corinthians 7, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. It's pretty clear if your unbelieving spouse doesn't want to divorce, you are not to divorce them. If your spouse wants to stay, you stay. If he's willing to stay, if she's willing to stay, you stay. And you be a Christ-like example. It says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Here's the good news. You sanctify your household. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's saved because of you, but it means you can be salt and light to them and they can come to a place of salvation. Amen? You know what? The unbelieving spouse will be impacted by your presence. They might not always like it. And again, it doesn't mean they go to heaven, but it does mean they're exposed to the truth. Then it does say in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, I know a few people that were so upset, they tried to get, get them to depart. Don't do that. I'm going to burn every meal. I'm going to be cantankerous, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going I'm to make the house smell wretched and get him out of here, right? Don't do that. Well, how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband, or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? We don't save them, but the point is made. So again, and this, I, I took some time to do that because I don't want you to leave her going, well, he married a pagan, he can leave, she has to go. Well, in this case, in the Old Covenant, it was true because it was defiling all of the, the Holy Land, the land of promise. And it defiled it once before, and he said, if they will not repent, we're going to see this later, that they need to go. Then it says in verse 4, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So here's what he's told them. They've been instructed they have to put their wives away if they're pagan idolaters. And that then he tells them, Arise, this matter is for your responsibility. You need to take care of this, but we're with you. Be of good courage and do it. I love that. Look, be of good courage and do it. Do what God has told you to do. Obey what the Word of God says. Don't just say, I understand it or I believe it. He says, do it. Faith produces an action. Faith without works is dead. Shechaniah both exhorted those guilty to do what was right and stood beside them in support. This was especially meaningful because it seems that though Shechaniah was not guilty of marrying a pagan woman, both his father and two of his uncles were. We'll see it in the list later. So even though Shechaniah was not guilty himself, he would stand by those who were guilty as they repented and turned away from their sinful actions. Guys, when people are struggling and they repent, may we support them, not shun them. Amen? When someone is struggling, we don't turn our back on them. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread, and we should never be self-righteous because we're all sinners saved by grace. Amen? And too often what will happen is 
You'll have these people that think they're so spiritually mature. Well, I have to have boundaries with people who aren't where I am spiritually. Well, we already know you're nowhere because you're prideful and get over yourself. Can I get an amen to that? But there's that mentality that takes place. And, I'm, and again, I get it. You don't want to invite someone into your house that uh, is going to bring harm to your children or something like that. But you can pick up the phone and call somebody. You can take them out to lunch and encourage them. Those are your brothers and sisters in Christ, and they need to be loved on, but they also need to be exhorted. And then when they're ready to repent, they need someone to stand by them and put their arm around them. Amen? And that's the exhortation here. It's kind of like, hey, go do it, but we'll stand with you. You need to go do this. You need to fix it. You never should have married that pagan woman. What were you thinking, bro? You need to get right, and, and you know what? You need to go fix that, and we'll stand with you while you do. So again, even though he was not guilty himself, he would stand by them, verse 5. So point number one there is by keeping short accounts with God. Again, Holy Spirit conviction. Notice that they have to take an action because of what they had done, and we need to do the same. When we're caught up in our sin, we don't just ignore it. We don't just hide it from the world. We confess it before God, and we move forward. Point number two, deal quickly to a sin. Look at verse five. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, all of Israel, swear to an oath that they would do according to this word, so they swore an oath. So the council of Shechaniah seemed good to Ezra, so he immediately called upon the people to swear an oath to do what the word of God says. So he calls them all together and he says, we're going to swear an oath. We're going to make a, a vow, a commitment before Almighty God that we're going to obey His Word. Guys, we're called again to do more than read the Word or know the Word. We're called to obey the Word. We're called to put feet to our faith. So Ezra began with the leaders' notice. He expected them to make things right with God first, to lead by example. The truth is that if somebody is called to lead spiritually, they should be someone who is above reproach. Someone without accusation, they're not sinless, or there'd be no leaders, amen? But there's somebody who, they're, they're, they're blameless in the sense that the, when you think of them, you don't think, oh, that's the guy that's got a bad temper, or that's the gal that's a gossip, or whatever. But we live lives, and we keep short accounts with God, and what he's saying is, look, if the leaders are walking in sin, we shouldn't be surprised if everyone else is. I use this as an example just because it's easy. None of the pastors here drink alcohol, nor will they ever if they want to stay being a pastor here. That simple. Game over. Not doing it. Why? Because even though you could argue that you can have a glass of wine with dinner, and that's between you and the Lord, and I won't debate that with you, I believe as pastors, we are called to be an example. Do people struggle with alcohol? Is that a problem in this world? Be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't need spirits. We have the Spirit. Amen. And so for us, along with other things that we should be an example to you, is that if you walked into a, if someone struggled with alcohol and they walked into a Mexican restaurant, my wife and I are drinking margaritas, they might go, well, the pastor's drink, I can drink, and then you got a problem, amen? And I also believe in 1 Timothy 3 that says that pastors aren't to drink alcohol, period, anyway. By the way, err on the side of holiness. How about that? Nobody ever, nobody ever got bummed out because they quit drinking alcohol. I've never heard anybody get drunk who didn't have a first drink, Amen? So he says, look, the leaders need to be an example. A man who will not follow God cannot lead others. So then in verse seven, 6, it says that Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Elshib. And when he, went, when he came there, he ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. Look at Ezra. He, he is, because this hasn't been resolved, Ezra goes from weeping and mourning 
and praying publicly and crying out to God, and now he's going to start fasting. Because there needs to be a change amongst God's people. And Ezra was the priest. And Ezra was the example. And Ezra, in a sense, what does a priest do? A priest, or we're all, the Bible says we're all priests. And the guys in the black robes, priests, not, we don't need them. Can I get an amen to that? Don't eat them. Oh, our intercessor is Jesus. Amen? amen? We don't go in a box, tell a guy, and he tells me how many hell Marys to say so I can be forgiven. Jesus said it is finished on the cross. Amen? But as believers, the Bible says we're, we're priests. And what that means is that we, we intercede with God on behalf of people, and we intercede with people on behalf of God. Does that make sense? And so what he's, what he's doing here is he is interceding on their behalf. He is, he's crying out to the Father on their behalf. He's praying for them, and he is speaking to them and exhorting them. So he's going to, he drinks no water, he ate no bread. And for Ezra, this whole tragedy was as bad as if someone had died. It's almost like he's mourning a death. When somebody walks away, it's almost worse than death. Amen? Because if you die and you know the Lord, we're going to see you again, and heaven is better. It's far worse to have them just walk away from God and deny their faith and live 50 more years. It's better to have them go to heaven. So this man who sets himself to seek, to do, and teach the law of God invariably brings him to a place of sorrow and often a place where he needs great courage. See, Ezra is crying out to God on their behalf. He's going to fast and he's going to pray. Why do we fast? It's denying ourselves physically so we can be more in tune with God spiritually. It's putting away the things that my flesh wants so I can intercede on behalf of others. Verse 6, it says there that he arose again before the house of God and went into the chamber. And again, he mourned uh, because of the guilt of those from the captivity, verse 7 and 8. And he says there in verse 7, And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all the descendants of the captivity, all the people that have come back from Babylon, that they must gather at Jerusalem. Now, I love this because he's been interceding for him, he's been praying for him, he's been crying out to God for him, but now he's going to get in their chest a little bit. Look at verse 8. And whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders, all the property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly, from those of the captivity. Here's what they're saying. Everybody needs to come to Jerusalem. We're going to address this problem. And if you don't show up in three days, we're taking your house and your stuff, and we're kicking you out of here. Uh, That raises attendance, (laughs) right? And Ezra has been given by King Artaxerxes the ability to operate where he oversees not just things spiritually, but things civilly. And so he's letting them know, we're going to address this, and we're all going to come and address it, and everybody's going to come here, and we're going to discuss this, and we're going to fix this, and if you don't show up, you're going to be kicked out of the country, and we're taking all your stuff. Wow. Maybe if we did that for church, everybody would get here on Sunday. So Ezra was given authority to do this, and the failure to do so... But again, would be lost property and lost fellowship, which is even more important. The refusal to repent again and broken fellowship with God. Now notice, point number two there is deal with sin quickly. Notice that they prayed, they recognized what the problem was, and now they're calling everybody to come and they're going to deal with it right now. 
Not six months from now, not a year from now. This is a problem. We need to fix this. And that should be our heart with the sin in our own life. Oh, yeah, I've been struggling with this for 10 years. Well, repent. Get right with God. Seek. You know what? Part, you, know what you know the sin that lasts the longest? The one that's never confessed. The one that we hide. The one we think that nobody knows. You know what? You can fool men, but you'll never fool God. Amen? We need to have diligence. I think as a Christian, we need to be careful how we look at this passage. For the lesson is not being quick to divorce. The lesson is being quick to deal with sin. Let me say that again. Even though it's going to talk about divorcing women that are pagan idolaters, that's not really the focus of the text here in context. It's not dealing with quick divorces. It's about dealing quickly with our sin. Again, we need to do that. So point number two there, deal quickly with our sin. Again, the sincerity of someone's repentance is seen in how quickly they act upon it. Point number three, separate yourself from the world. Look at verse nine. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. Guess what? That worked. You're going to lose your stuff and we're kicking you out. They all showed up. Remember that the, the two southern kingdoms, Judah, right, and the tribe of Benjamin, they were the only ones that were part of Judah. Everyone else was a part of Israel. So they're gathering together, Judah and Benjamin, gathered at Jerusalem. It was the ninth month, on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. I went and looked at the Jewish calendar. This would be December. If you've been to the Middle East in the, in the winter, it's cold. It can even snow there. And Jerusalem is elevated, so it gets even colder. So they're all gathered together in the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem, and they're all this big, huge crowd there. First, they're trembling because they're standing before God in His righteous judgment, and they're also trembling because of a heavy, cold rain. So here they are, but I want you to notice something, and I love this. It's so appropriate for our church, amen? Uh, Jerusalem can get quite cold, as I said, but they didn't cancel the meeting because it was cold and raining. Amen. They didn't even have a tent. We got a tent. Can I get an amen to that? We got a few heaters in the tent. Keep the rain from falling on us. Can I get an amen to that? So they didn't cancel the Oh, it's, it's cold and rainy. We're just, we'll, we'll postpone this. We need better weather. Um, you know what? I love that, hey, we're here. We need to get right with God. There's no reason not to be here. And they were trembling both because of the fact that, hey, the, the judgment of God but also because it was difficult. Their unified response was another evidence of the moving of the Holy Spirit among the people. You know, they'll deal with discomfort of the cold rain, but just, you know, just something to think about. How easy is it to keep you from doing the right thing? How easy for you to come? I'm talking to the Thursday night group, so I know I'm speaking to the choir. But there's people that look for any excuse not to be at church. And again, I'm not trying to raise attendance at church. I just want, to, I just want us all to grow spiritually. Amen. When we love Jesus, church is a get-to, not a have-to. I, I used to have coworkers. You go to church like four times a week. Yeah, that's only because I can't go seven. Can I get amen to that? Yeah, I do. And, hey, you know, I, yeah, it's a get-to, not a have-to. What, take, what does it take to keep, keep you from reading your Bible? What does it take to keep you from praying? Even lions couldn't keep Daniel from praying. Amen? 
And I, so I love their response. They've all come together. It's pouring down rain. It's freezing cold. They're standing there. They're sitting there waiting to hear from the Lord. And again, the rain didn't stop them. Trembling because of the matter and the heavy rain, the willingness of the people to humbly assemble in adverse conditions was more evidence of the moving of the Holy Spirit among them. Real quickly, in, 19, in 1859, there was a, a great revival that took place in Northern Ireland. And there was, what happened was there was this small church and it just kept growing and people were getting saved. And at one point, 3,000 people were in this small building and they were concerned that the, the balconies were going to collapse and kill everybody. So they went outside and it was pouring down freezing rain. And it was ice cold outside. And they went out and uh, this man by the last name of Orr was sharing the gospel. He wasn't a pastor or anything. He was just a local guy who loved God. And all these people got saved in a single night, and that 3,000 people turned into over a million people in, in uh, the United Kingdom that got saved through that one revival. And guess what? If everybody had gone home because it was raining or because it was cold, we'd have missed it all. So we must, guys, we need to learn to get past. It's not about your comfort. It's about God's glory. Amen? And we're, and we're so stinking comfortable, we don't know what we're talking about. I go to India, and they got these people. They're out in the middle of nowhere. you got to walk through weeds up to here. They're filled with rattlesnakes. I hope you don't get bit on the way to church. You don't have any shoes on. And they get there, and the place is 115 degrees inside. they got a little fan that barely moves and doesn't do anything. And they sit there and wait for four hours for, for, for service. And then they have service for five hours because they're hungry for the Word of God, and they have nowhere else to go. And then we come back and like, you know, it's 71. I like 73. I think I'm going home. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or NASCAR's on on Sunday. We're going to miss it, right? We'll drive, to, we'll drive to Dodger Stadium and wait two hours to get in the parking lot, but we can't drive eight miles when we move from Calabasas. You know who you are on the live stream right now. So Ezra's word was clear and it was strong. Look what happens here in verse 10. It says there that Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, "'You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives.'" adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make your confession to the Lord, of your, the Lord God of your fathers, and do his will. will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from these pagan wives. Is that pretty blunt? I love when I see direct people in the Bible. I feel like I'm in their company. But make confessions to the Lord to do his will. This is a clear call to both confession and repentance. He's not saying, so recognize you did it, but now you got to do something about it. Confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Faith without works is dead, and confession without repentance is meaningless. Amen? And we just confess and we don't change anything. Repentance is a decision to stop one's sinful behavior and to do his will. It's an essential element of the Christian life. Again, Ezra's words were stabbing them in the front. You've sinned against God. You need to make it right. Some believe repentance is only done when you get your, give your life to the Lord, but repentance lives as long as your faith does. And we need to believe and repent as long as we live. And again, faith without works is dead, so is confession without repentance. Now, separate yourselves literally can be translated, be holy. Holiness is being set apart from. You know, the word sanctification means to be set apart. That's where we get the word saint, the set apart ones. So as believers, if we've, you know, we're justified at salvation, we're being sanctified till the day we're glorified. So we were justified just as if we never sinned when we repent and gave our life to Jesus. 
But now we're in this process that never ends until we get to heaven. And it's sanctification. It's being set apart, right? That's what the word saint means. We are the set apart ones, set apart from the world and unto the Lord until the day that we are glorified. The idea of being separate, again, is that root means holy. And God's idea of being different is to live a life of holiness, separating ourselves from the pollution of the world. And being separate doesn't mean to be alone. You know, if you're being set apart unto the Lord, you're in great company. Amen? First Peter says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. God is different, God is holy, God is set apart, and we are called to follow him. Amen? So he's telling them, separate yourself from this pagan idolatry. Now notice how they respond. Then all the assembly answer with a loud voice, yes! They responded. Now that's a move of God when you can get a crowd of people sitting in the cold, freezing rain being exhorted that they're in sin and they need to get right with God and they need to repent and they need to do something about it and they all scream, yes. That's the Lord, amen? Then it says there, as you have said, so we must do. I love that. They said yes, and they said, hey, Ezra, what you've exhorted us to do, we need to do it. It's one thing to listen to it and nod your head and say amen, and it's another thing to go home and do it. They immediately answered with a loud voice in agreement with what Ezra had said. Verse 13, and it says there, but there are many people, it is a season for heavy rain, and we're not able to stand outside, nor is this work for one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed this matter. So here's what's going to happen. This is where they set it up, and they're like, look, it's going to take a long time because so many of us have married pagan women that it's going to take more than a day or two for you to bring in one couple at a time before these elders, before Ezra, right? And ask them, so where are you at? Have you given your life to the Lord? Where are you? Are you still walking? Are you still a pagan idolater? It, we're going to see in a couple of verses, it's going to take them three months to examine all the people as they come in one couple at a time. But then notice they say, look, we need to do this right, but it's going to take time. Can we please, you know, set it to, get, set it, get a set time for each of us to come? Look what it says in verse 14. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand. Let all those in our cities who've taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and the judges of their cities, until the fierce wrath of God has turned away from us in this matter. They recognize that their sinful behavior is going to have consequences if they don't change. I want to encourage you, again, if there's a, if there's a pet sin you've been hanging on to, if you're struggling with something that nobody else knows about, and you think you can just keep getting away with it, I want to encourage you, get right with God before the wrath of God comes upon it. That's what they're saying. They're like, look, we know if we ignore this, the wrath of God's coming. And if we ignore this exhortation from tonight, if we ignore this exhortation from the Word of God, the wrath of God is coming. Look what it says in verse 15. Look, there were a few guys, that everybody said yes, but there were a few guys that didn't agree. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashahel, and Jahaziah, the son of Tikbah, opposed this, and Meshalem and Shebathai, the Levite, gave their support. So four people didn't agree with what Ezra said, and it's really great to have your name in the Bible for that as well. 
Yeah, you got four knuckleheads that don't agree right over there. And by the way, here's their names. Write it down. Put it in the Bible. Let everybody know who they were. Thanks. They <laughs> into that. So we're going to see one of these guys. There's going to be a reason because uh, Meshulam, when you get to verse 29, he was married to a pagan woman. Well, I don't agree. My wife's a hottie. I want to keep her. I mean, whatever it is, right? He just said, I'm not in. I don't want to do it. I don't agree, right? Verse 16. Then the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest with certain uh, heads of the father's households were set apart by, fa- by father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the 10th month to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. So it took months. And what did they do? They questioned them. And if the women... Had, now, they, who knows how long they'd been there? They may have been married to them for 10 years. And they've been, they may have turned back on their pagan idolatry. And now they have a family together. And they may be honoring the Lord. Now, again, even though uh, they marry a pagan and the pagan converts, they're still not to marry pagans. I have someone in my family who got married to an unbeliever. And they asked me to do the wedding, and I couldn't do it. And it was heartbreaking because I love this person very, very much. And I said, I can't do it. And... Uh, the person they married, I found out, you know, for years, he was mad at me that I wouldn't do the wedding. Well, praise the Lord, they started com- he started coming to our church. He was involved in Hollywood. He came to our church. He got saved. I baptized him in the ocean. All three of their kids are walking with the Lord. He's on fire for God now. He's got these two beautiful daughters who are uh, in their 20s. And I'm like, so if someone same guy comes over and wants me to do their wedding, what do you want me to tell them? No, 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 exactly. Now, I want to say this. Because it ended well, that is not a pattern we should follow. Amen? I know people that got saved because they had a DUI and crashed their car into a tree. I don't recommend that for salvation. Amen? God can do things, but we don't want to disobey God and hope that we're going to be the one that escapes it. Amen? So praise God for that. So all the men who had taken pagan wives, they have to come in and you know, they're going to question all these men. And the whole process is going to take, again, many weeks, a couple of months. And so to the end of the chapter, from verse 18 to verse 44, all you really have there is a list of names. You know what they are? These are all the guys that married pagan women. And these are the ones where the women were not, did not surrender their lives to God. And these are the ones that are all going to have to go. And what's amazing about this, it's a small number in comparison to how many had come. Some estimate it may have only been like 1%. So even though they did it the wrong way, God, by His grace, many of these women had turned their hearts toward God, but that's still not the way. Well, I married an unbeliever and it worked out fine. That's the grace of God. But, but most people I know that have done that would not recommend it. Can I get an amen to that? So the first one's Again, to straighten things out were the priests. They also were the first ones listed. You have these four sons that disagreed. And sometimes it's hard to see what you're doing because you can't see right because you've got a plank in your own eye. See, sometimes we're so concerned with someone else's sin that we don't know our own. And this list of names here, a lot of these guys, you know, everyone else was doing it, so they just did it themselves. And somebody godly finally came along and said, this is wrong. This has to stop. We need to fix it. You might be that person in your workplace. You might be that person in your family. You might be that person, again, 
in, in the Bi- a Bible study you attend, where everyone else is just kind of going with the flow and that you're just too radical about your faith? What are you, some kind of Jesus freak? You better believe it, because who better in the world to be a freak for than Jesus? Can I get him into that? So guilty, they were guilty as a nation, but God saw the, the, the sin of all the individuals, and he names them here. You go down this list of names, this is not a list you want to be in. You don't want your name there. I don't, I'm not going to read all of them, but all of them were put in that position because of choices they made. And again, the last point is, you know what, guys, we need to keep our guard up when it comes to sin. This sin was one that was partially responsible for Babylonian captivity, and now they're doing it again. And it's still not over because guess what? 12 years later in Nehemiah, they're going to do it again. And then 30 years later in Nehemiah 13, they're going to do it again. Guess what? Any of you guys have a sin that you struggled with, you stopped doing it, and you did it again? Amen? Amen? Take heed lest you fall. Sin is going to be something that we struggle with our entire lives. We should never take it lightly. We should never take it for granted. We should not just confess our sin, but we should do something about it, and may we remain faithful. Don't just let down your guard. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If God has delivered you from a particular sin, don't think you'll never be tempted by that again. Amen? So, pursuing personal revival, first by keeping short accounts with God. We should not be people that sin and we, it mounts up for weeks or months and then we come before the Lord. I think the quicker, we, the sooner as we sin, we should respond. That's point number two. Deal quickly with our sin. You know what? The sincerity of someone's repentance and how quickly they act is a sign of how they are mature spiritually. Separate yourself from the world. Be in the world, but not of it. Minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. Don't be impacted by the world. Have an impact on the world. Thirdly, examine your heart before God. You know, seek godly counsel and wisdom from mature believers. Be transparent about how you're doing spiritually. Be open to correction. We don't like it, but it's what we need to grow spiritually. And then finally, Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. These were all professing believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he began the judgment first with the leaders and all those who had chosen to disobey God. And now he's bringing righteous judgment upon them and calling them to repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for your word. I pray for anybody who's here tonight that may be struggling with a hidden sin in their lives. Lord, may they come humbly and broken before you before they leave this room. Help us, Lord, not to be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives. Help us, Lord, not to live lives of undercover sin. Help us to keep short accounts with you. Help us to not only confess our sin, but, Lord, to do something about it, to truly repent, to turn away from it. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.